All right, go ahead and take your Bible and open to Acts chapter 2. Hope you were able to read it while you were at your tailgate yesterday. We're just picking up where we left off last week in this study through Acts. I know a lot of you were gone last week because of A, the game in Texas and then the holiday weekend, but we pressed on anyway and we didn't make it very far. I was supposed to cover all of chapter 2. I got about half of it done. (laughs) Uh, And if you weren't here last Sunday, if you're new to Lakeview, um, just know that anything that you miss, we you can hear on our podcast. So we have a podcast, if you didn't know about that, just search Lakeview College Ministry, should pop up, should have my name somewhere on that, and you can listen to what we said last week. We put usually just put Sunday morning and then Wednesday night, College Bible Study, CBS, on there. Uh, and I really want to encourage you to come on Wednesday nights at 8 for College Bible Study. It's just a good time together in the middle of the week to to sing together, to hear the Word of God together, to pray together. Uh, Just a sweet time of fellowship. Anyway, back to Acts chapter 2. We didn't make it all the way through Acts 2, so we're going to try to finish out Acts 2 and and all of chapter (laughs) 3. So we have a bit of ground to cover. But I don't think that these two chapters are completely unrelated, so that's good. It gives us a chance to see the connection between these two chapters. Before we read the passage that we're going to think through, let's just recall what happened in the earlier part of chapter 2 so we're not just flying in blind. The chapter, chapter 2 began with the 120 disciples waiting in Jerusalem uh, as Jesus had told them to in Matthew chapter, I mean, excuse me, in Acts chapter 1 for these, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit was poured out. It was the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And those 120 began to speak in other tongues, in other languages. And the thing about Pentecost that day was people from all over the world were there. And they, they were hearing these 120 Jews, now Christians, speaking in all these different languages. And not just speaking, but as they put it, they, we, they said, we hear them telling the mighty works of God in our own language. And it was kind of like a reversal of the Tower of Babel, wherein the Tower of Babel in Genesis they were trying to make a name for themselves rather than make a name for God, and he confused their language. Now God was doing a saving work where he was going to work in people where they would not make a name for themselves but make his name great because it is great, and he, would, and he was reversing these language barriers to, 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 to hear the, the mighty work of, of God in their own language. So in that moment, a crowd gathered hearing these, these people speaking in their own language, and... Uh, and just let me say something about that because we're gonna, this is something we're going to see over and over in Acts. Is when a miracle is done, when a miracle is performed, whether it's this, it's speaking in tongues or it's healing or something like that, uh, there's always a pattern that, that it follows. A miracle is done, it, it's like a spectacle, it gets people's attention, they gather around, and it's a ready forum for someone to stand up and preach the gospel message. That's just what we see here. They speak in tongues, people gather around, Peter stands up, and he begins to preach. And his, and, he, and his sermon is focused on Jesus, whom they had crucified, but he says God has raised him from the dead. He has ascended into heaven at the Father's right hand, and he's poured out this Holy Spirit that you see today. And again, we don't have time to go into all of it. Listen to the podcast to, to, where we talk about the significance of the Old Testament passages that he quoted in that sermon. But our text for this morning 
begins right at the tail end of that sermon. The, the, the verses that come immediately after that sermon that Peter preached. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 37. And then the, we'll see the church is formed at the end of chapter 2. And then there's a miracle performed in chapter 3. And Peter preaches another sermon at the end of that chapter. Uh, so to get our bearings for what we're going to talk about, let's, let's read the passage before we dive into it. I know it's a bit to read, but Paul instructed us in 1 Timothy 4.13 not to neglect the public reading of Scripture. So that's what we're going to do. So let's begin reading in chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, talking about Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized... Uh, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, uh, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. <laughs> and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them, see, Miracle happens, draws a crowd, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. But God, whom God raised from the dead, to this were witnesses. In His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. 
And that the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled, repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom, God, whom heaven must receive until the time for rest, restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, he quotes Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. All right, let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We confess that. We don't want to stand in judgment over it. We want to come in submission to it. And so I ask, Lord, that you might give us eyes to see the truth that is clearly here, minds to understand that truth, hearts to embrace and love that truth, wills to obey whatever it would lead us to do. Give me help that I need this morning to teach. And give us all ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Trying to put all this together, I think there's a common thread that runs through all of this. Aside from merely the, just the historical account of what happened. And I think the common thread that runs through the end of chapter 2 and on through chapter 3 is, a, is just a pretty straightforward emphasis on salvation. And what is required to gain it and what results from it. And that's how I want to frame this, this chapter and a half. Uh, I'm going to, I'll call it the, res, the requirements and results of salvation. I think that, that summarizes the messages that are preached in this chapter, the, even the miracle that is done. And essentially, that's going to be our two points, the requirements of salvation uh, and the re results that are pictured here from it. So with all that said, let's, let's dive into it and think first about the requirements of salvation. We see this theme throughout both chapters, so let's try and see it the requirements of our salvation. I, in general, I think there are three, three basic requirements of salvation that are uh, made clear in this passage. Um, and, and these three are sort of broken down a little more specifically when we come to them. Here's the first requirement I think is made clear in this, this story, this narrative, about an, what is required for salvation, and that is this. Salvation requires hearing the gospel. Salvation requires hearing the gospel. Notice, if you're in chapter 2, notice how verse 37 begins. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They had just been in the hearing of the gospel that Peter had boldly preached to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't, again, we don't have time to go back into his sermon uh, point by point, but he had just proclaimed to them the saving significance of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his lordship, they had audibly come in contact with the message of the gospel. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And it's just a settled 
biblical truth that we need to come to in firm grasp of. It's a settled biblical truth that saving faith does not come apart from contact with the Word of God, with the message of the gospel. That sounds simple, and it is, but it's, ne- it's, it's necessary. Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So God has chosen the spoken delivery of His message. Yeah, you can, you, you can hand this Bible to someone and they can, they can read it and, and through that, through coming in contact with the Word in that way, they can, the Spirit can move and they can come to saving faith that way. But nine times out of ten, it is through somebody like you and somebody like me opening our mouths and telling them the message of the gospel. Coming into it, because God is, more times than not, God has, has chosen the spoken delivery of his message to be the vehicle of salvation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So faith is not generic. We're not saved by generic faith. We're saved through explicit faith in a specific message. We believe certain truths we 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 uh we submit ourselves to uh, a a a real person who's made known to us through the message of the gospel god could but he's not going to write it in the sky he's not going to write it in the clouds he's going to send you and me to tell them about it right and that's exactly what he already told them back in chapter 1 verse 8 you will be my witnesses you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea Samaria to the end of the earth. Faith comes through hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. In that same chapter, that's that's his conclusion. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Just a few verses before that in verse 14 in Romans 10, Paul asks the legitimate question. How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to believe in him if they've never heard of him? So that's the urgency of the gospel that we know and that we believe it's an urgency to tell our neighbors who don't know and who don't believe we have it we we are tasked to tell them and it's all the more urgent to take this gospel to places in the world where where there is no gospel witness at all and there is no one there to bring that gospel message it is totally unreached totally unengaged how are they to hear if in, in him who they've never heard? How are they to believe if they've never heard? How are they to hear without a preacher, he says in Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing. So telling and hearing the gospel message are a necessary requirement to salvation. But that alone is not sufficient. This passage is going to make clear that that alone is not sufficient. It's not sufficient to just hear the gospel <laughs> For anyone to be saved. Because, just look at what happened. They spoke in tongues. Miracle happened. Thousands were gathered in Jerusalem that day. They all gathered round. They all heard Peter's sermon. 3,000 of them received it. Believed. But not everybody did. Not everybody did. So what explains why, yeah, 3,000 did. What explains why they did and others didn't? There's a second requirement for salvation that I think we see here. 
And that is that salvation requires the sovereign work of God in our hearts. Salvation requires a sovereign work of God in our hearts before we can believe. It's right here in the text. So look at verse 39. He says, For the promise, what promise? Well, the promise he had just given them in verse 38. So in your Bible, just look back at verse 38. He had just told them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. So now, now that promise, he says in verse 39, is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off. And then he adds this qualifier. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You see that? So the promise is for you, who of you? The promise is for your children, who of them? All those who are far off, who of them? Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's right there in the text. This is an inward calling in the heart by God. It's an effectual calling, and it coincides with the hearing of the gospel message in those who repent and believe. Let me give you another example of it than just this one verse. Turn, uh, hold your place here and turn over later in Acts to chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And in this chapter, Paul, he's in several places. He begins in Thessalonica, then Berea, but latter half of the chapter, he is in Athens. That, that part begins in verse 16 of chapter 17. But beginning in verse 22, he goes to the Areopagus where a lot of the philosophers were gathered and he begins to preach to them. He preaches, he preaches, and then the sermon ends in verse 31. Uh, look at that verse. He, he ends with this strong word because he has fixed, God has fixed a day, he tells them, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Boom. Now, what happens next in verses 32 to 34? In verse 32, when they hear this, some of them mocked. Some of them mocked. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. Verse 34, some men joined and believed. So how do you explain this? They all heard the same message. Why were... Why did some of them, when they heard this same message, why did some mock, why did some believe and join? Was it because those who believed and joined were less dead in their sins than the others? Right? Was it, because according to Ephesians 2.1, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. So why the difference? Why did some believe instead of mock? This specific passage doesn't actually spell it out in this passage, but it doesn't have to. Because the answer has already been given in the chapter right before this. So flip back to Acts 16. Here, Paul is in Philippi, and he shares the gospel with some ladies who had gathered down by the river. One of those ladies was named Lydia. So that begins in verse 11, right? Lydia. And, and, and when, when, when Paul shares with these ladies, plural, who had gathered there that day, Lydia is the only one, we're told, who, um, who believed at that moment. Later, her family would believe, the rest of her family. But here at this gathering, Lydia is the only one who believed of these ladies. 
Why? Why does she believe? Well, look at verse 14. Luke tells us why she believed. He says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's why, well, that's why she believed. Not because she was somehow different or better than the other ladies she was there with. It's not because the, the, of those philosophers in Athens that day, some of them were, were just you know raised differently than those who mocked or had some other outward reason, but because the Lord opened her heart. And she, she, that's why she paid attention. That's why she believed. It's just clear in, in Scripture that, that salvation, that hearing the gospel message, is not enough because simply hearing it causes some to mock and some to believe. So Scripture goes even further and says that if we're going to be saved and, and repent and believe, it first requires not only hearing the gospel, but a sovereign work of God in our hearts to bring us to that place. Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Lots come to Jesus. 3,000 were saved in that day. But those who came were because the Father drew him. Drew them. That's what Jesus says. He says a few verses later in John 6, 65, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Paul compared this sovereign work of God in our hearts to creation. Creation. People love to quote 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's a good memory verse. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That's a great verse. But have you ever really thought about what he's saying? If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. We're a new cre who creates? Who creates in Scripture? Who creates? God. And God alone creates. And a heart that believes, is, it, Paul says here, is like a new creation of God. We know this is what he's talking about, alluding to creation, because in the chapter right before that, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he talks about unbelievers. And he says, the God of this world, little g, that's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Unbelievers, he said, are blinded. They're kept from seeing. Well, if that's true, and we're all sinners, if that's true, how can anybody be saved? How can any blind person see? Well, he continues in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's just a fancy way of saying, for God who said, let there be light. Let there be light. It's talking about creation. That same God who said, let there be light in creation, and there was light, he says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who said, let there be light in the universe, says, let there be light in the heart of an unbeliever. Right? It requires a sovereign work of God in our hearts. Back to our passage in Acts chapter 2. And three, the Spirit was given to Peter who preached on that day at Pentecost in Jerusalem. And we were told in verses uh, 12 and 13 back in chapter 2 that, that many mocked them, mocked them then. Why did 3,000 believe? The Lord did it. The Lord called them to himself and they came. Hence the promise of 239 is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
It's a sovereign work of God in our hearts, which I think is also the point of the miracle in chapter 3. The, the lame beggar healed. It reinforces this point. What's the miracle? Healed a man who was lame. They had to bring him there and lay him there daily to beg for alms. Who are they bringing? They're bringing someone who has no capacity within himself to get up and walk. None. But was given that power and ability by Christ sovereignly through Peter and John. It says in chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, Peter said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand, the right hand, and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And of course, everybody was amazed. Wouldn't you be? Why? Because that doesn't naturally happen. It doesn't naturally happen. Lame people don't leap and walk. Neither do spiritually dead people naturally show signs of life until God does that in our hearts. So, we've said so far that the requirements of salvation require hearing the gospel message. How can they believe in Him of whom they've never heard? But when they hear, salvation also requires a sovereign work of God in your heart. But that being said, it's not as if we have zero part in the process. It's not as if we're merely robots. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God must raise our hearts from the dead, but there's a third and final requirement here in this text, and it is salvation requires a genuine response from us. It requires a genuine response. And we're going to talk about three of them. Because this, this, this says, this passage shows that, that, that when the Lord works and moves in our hearts, we must and do respond to His initiative. God's call is effectual. It is always effective. But when He calls, we come. But when, that, that's just it. When He calls, we come. We come. What kind of response does it require? I say it's threefold. Just write them down, I'll tell you. The Scripture seems to make clear that, that, that this threefold re, uh, response from us includes, it requires that we come to the end of ourselves. We come to the end of ourselves. We come to the end of our own efforts. We come to the end of our own self-confidence before God. We come to the end of ourselves. We see we come to a place of desperation. That's what I'm trying to say. Look at chapter 2, verse 37. They were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? They came to that place. What can I do? So it requires us to come to the end of ourselves, but it also requires genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. Because just coming to the end of yourself is not repentance, is it? That's part of it. That's not all of it. There are genuine repentance. Look again at chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall we do? Repent. Repent and be baptized. Not merely repent, not merely sorrow for sin. They had just done that in verse 37. They were cut to the heart. What shall we do? That's sorrow. What shall we do? He didn't say, well, you're doing it now. You're sorry. No, he says they were cut to the heart, and he could see that they were cut to the heart. Now what shall we do? Repent. 
repent and turn. It's a decisive turning away from this and going to that. Look at the end of verse 40. He, with many other words, he kept preaching at the end of verse 40. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves. Flee. That's turning and going. And after the, after the miracle in chapter 3, Peter stood to preach again. And what does he say in chapter 3, verse 19? Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Repent. Turn. And down in verse 26, at the end of chapter 3, God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Salvation requires a genuine response from us. Coming to the end of ourselves, we hear the gospel message, we hear who Christ is, why He came, why He came for me. I come to the end of myself. I don't want to associate with that anymore. I want to turn away from it. I, don't, I want to turn away from my sin in a life without Christ. But thirdly and finally, the response is it requires explicit faith in Jesus. Not just a returning from this, but an explicit faith in that. Faith in Jesus, as we've said. Look again at chapter 2, verse 38. We're coming back. That's, our, that's the theme verse, I think, from this, this lesson. It's come to it a lot. He says in chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, why did you pick this one? I, you know, a couple of reasons. How do we see faith in Jesus here in this verse? I see repentance. I see being baptized. Where does it, I don't even see the word faith in Jesus. Well, I, I see it here, and I see it in the phrase, be baptized. Because... He is not saying here, even though it may seem like it on first glance, he's not saying that baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of your sins. He's not saying that. How do we know that? He's not saying that a person is not saved until they've been baptized in water. He's not saying it's unimportant, but that's not the means of the forgiveness of your sins. How do we know he's not saying that? Because if he is, if that is what he's saying, then Peter sadly left half the truth out in chapter 3, verse 19, when all he said was, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Well, if baptism was necessary for your sins to be blotted out, he totally left it out of chapter 3. No mention of baptism. Faith in Jesus is required in our response. And I believe Peter in chapter 2, verse 38 is using baptism here to point to what it symbolizes, what it points to. And baptism points to a lot of things, but at the very least, it is an outward profession of faith. It is, it is identification, public identification with Jesus Christ. So salvation requires that we hear the gospel, that God move in our hearts to respond to it, and it requires a genuine response from us to see our helplessness and our hopelessness apart from His mercy decisively turn away from myself and decisively turn in faith to Jesus Christ. We see it here. Publicly identifying ourselves as his followers and disciples. Those are the requirements. But quickly in these chapters, we not only see the requirements, we see the results. Clearly stated. We'll quickly bring this to an end, I think. I see 
in this passage that the results of salvation, as it's laid out here in this passage, is threefold. Not surprisingly. And you could put it this way, that in our salvation, God has designs to do something for us, in us, and through us. For us, in us, and through us. And we see each of these at the end of chapter 2. For us, in us, and through us. First of all, God does something for us. For us in salvation. He says, again, our favorite verse, verse 38 of chapter 2. He says, repent and, and be baptized, faith in Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. For it. For the forgiveness. This is something he's done for us because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to overcome the penalty of our sins. So he's done something for us to remove the penalty of our sins. Second of all, he does something in us for our salvation. Still in verse 38 where he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the restoration of our souls. It's what he meant in chapter 3 verse 20 by times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the, time, the, presence of the Lord here is the Holy Spirit in you when you believe. Times of refreshing, restoration. That's something in us immediately upon conversion. It's an ongoing daily basis the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He's already done something for us to overcome the penalty of our sins. Now by the Spirit in us, He's doing something in us to overcome the power of sin in our lives. Now, there's one more result that we see at the end of chapter 2. And that is God does something through us, through us for our salvation. That is, when we come to faith in Christ, as if the, if the end of chapter 2 tells us anything, it is this, that when we come to faith in Christ, He brings us into the church. He brings us into the church. In verse 41, these, it says that these 3,000 new believers were added to the church. There were added that day, about 3,000 souls. Added what? People in this church in Jerusalem. And when you get to the end of chapter 2 in verse 47, it specifically says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Added to their number. Whose number? The church's number. Everybody that was saved there was added to that number of the church in Jerusalem. So as people were being saved in Jerusalem over time, they weren't just being saved, they were being added to the number of the church. We talked about this this past Wednesday night at CBS. Go listen to it on the podcast if you weren't here. I'll say it again now. There is not a category. There's not a category in the New Testament for a believer, a professing believer in Jesus Christ, who wants to be faithful. There's not a category in the New Testament for that person who doesn't officially belong to a local church with the exception of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 who was in the desert and there was no church. The New Testament pattern for believers is to be officially joined to the local church where they live. Where they live. And that means for many of you, as you live here in Auburn, you don't live at home anymore. You live here in Auburn. The New Testament expectation for you is to join the local church where you live. 
And if you want a fuller picture of the reasons why, listen to the podcast from last Wednesday night. But here you clearly see the pattern. And their fellowship was amazing. <laughs> Verse 42. You see, it was deeply rooted in the Lord, in the apostles' teaching, in the breaking of the bread, which I take as the Lord's Supper. The breaking of the bread. Not any old bread. <laughs> and in the prayers. Not just prayer, the prayers. Coming together at set times to pray together. And in verses 44 and 45, they sacrificed themselves and their belongings for each other when, when they were in need. And I love verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple in their homes, I mean, together, they, in breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This makes you want to be there. They received, my favorite line is, they received with generous hearts. They received with generous hearts. That fellowship was sanctifying to them. It grew them deeply in the Lord and in His Word, and it grew them, grew them deeply in fellowship with each other, dying more to themselves every day, loving God and loving neighbor. And the Lord is in that fellowship foreshadowing through, that through them that one day we're going to be freed from the very presence of sin. He's done something for us to address the penalty of our sins, in us to address the power of our sins, and wants to do something through us to foreshadow that one day we're going to be free from the very presence of sin. And it was irresistible to the world around them. Verse 43 says that awe came upon every soul. And verse 47 says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. God grant that here. So God was using his church to do his saving work through them to grow them in love for him to each other, but in all that to be witnesses to his saving grace to the world. When the Lord saves us, he does something for us, in us, and through us to sanctify us and to save others. What a great salvation we've been given. In, uh, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, Paul thanks God as he puts it for his inexpressible gift. His inexpressible gift inexpressible, indescribable, unspeakable. Even Paul, who wrote over half our New Testament and wrote great treatises like Romans and Ephesians and Galatians describing at length for what God has done, still felt like sometimes he did not have the words to describe what God had done for us. And I pray that we would meditate on this passage more and more and come to that same place. Let's pray.